Good morning. Today I'd like to uh, offer you a meditation on access to God's throne. The presence of God and the purification of his people. Access to God's throne room. The story goes that Yuri Gagarin, the first man in space, uh, a Russian, boo, Uh, returned to earth saying, I looked and looked and I saw no God. In fact, that was probably just Soviet propaganda. But it does encapsulate an attitude uh, that was common in certain circles even to this day. People often dispute the existence of God simply on the grounds that they can't prove it uh, by scientific means. But as any honest scientist would admit, trying to measure spiritual things with physical apparatus is a little bit like trying to measure gas with a ruler. It's absurd. And as we continue our studies in Hebrews, I think it's timely to remind ourselves that we're engaged in examining spiritual, heavenly mysteries using merely human, earthly minds. We need, therefore, to approach these matters with considerable humility, embracing the feebleness of our own understanding but also rejoicing that through the scriptures and supremely in Christ, God has chosen to reveal himself to us. So with the Holy Spirit's help, we press on. Today's study brings us to the halfway point in this wonderful letter or sermon, whichever it is. We've seen that, one, Jesus is fully God, the creator, sustainer, and savior of the world, the exact imprint of the Father, now seated at God's right hand. Two, We've seen that at the same time, Jesus is fully human, our brother, like us in every respect, including the temptations that we are heir to, yet now crowned with honor and glory. Three, that we, like Israel of old, have been set free from slavery, not directly into the promised land, but into the wilderness that leads to it. A place where we can either learn to trust in God and persevere, or we can fail completely and never make it to our journey's end. Four, we've learned that Jesus is our great high priest, our forerunner into the very presence of God, our anchor against drifting with the current of the world we live in, an anchor set forever within the veil, that is, in the Holy of Holies, where God lives. And fifthly, uh, in in the last talk, we learned that the priesthood of Jesus is like that of the curious, mysterious Old Testament character Melchizedek, the priest king who both preceded and also outranks the uh, Jewish priesthood that followed. And as Morag wisely put it last week, Hebrews presents them as just the tribute act. Jesus is the original, and we get to see him whenever we want for free. So we come to Hebrews 8, and today we're going to read uh, that chapter and down to 9, verse 14. Now, the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, 
since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that says much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what's becoming obsolete is growing old and it's ready to vanish away. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared. The first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes. And he, but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? 
for the purposes of today's talk, I want us to study this passage in uh, quite a long passage, but we'll rip through it, I promise. Um, study this passage in four sections, and for neatness, I've headed each one of them with a pair of peas. Not a pod, not a whole pod of peas, just a pair of peas for each one. In verses one, one, verses one to seven cover the perfect priesthood of Jesus. Verses eight to 13, the permanent promise of God. Chapter nine, one to 10, the past and the presence of God. And finally, 11 to 14, our purification and purpose. So part one, the perfect priesthood of God. To the Hebrews, the concept of a priest was, was really well known and understood. And we've rather lost touch with that ourselves. They were, um, the priests were people who were selected by birthright to represent the people before God, offering the people sacrifices and gifts, and so making them right with God, at least up until the next time. And in that respect, I suppose it was a bit like my upbringing as a Catholic back in the day. In the sacrament of confession, I could tell the priest everything I'd done wrong. He would grant ab- absolution. Te absolvo in nomine patris et filius et spiritus sanctus. Say amen, and then you're all absolved. Okay? And, and I would go away feeling I was walking on air. I felt completely light. All my sins had been lifted off me. I felt forgiven. Trouble is, a couple of days later... I'd stub my toe spiritually and become aware again of just how sinful and in need of salvation I was. And I can't imagine it was much different for the Jew going to make a sacrifice for sins. A sort of wonderful experience briefly, but it was short-lived. The priesthood of Jesus, yet the heavenly temple he operates in, and the new covenant under which he does so are all infinitely better than these Old Testament counterparts. His is a perfect priesthood, acted out once and forever in the one true temple in accordance with the final fulfilled covenant which God has now made with mankind. All the centuries of Old Testament worship up to that point were only a foreshadowing of the reality which we now see revealed in Jesus. In verse 1, the writer reminds us that Jesus is now seated at God's right hand. In other words, his work is done. And for me, there's, there's some tension between this and verse 2, where he's seen as still a minister in the holy places, which seems to me to imply that his priesthood is ongoing. So it needs a little thought, I think. Perhaps, I reckon, this is just the nature of eternity, that an eternal act can be seen as always happening, even though in time terms it is done and dusted. An example of this we see in Revelation, where Jesus is called the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Well, we know that Jesus died at a particular place and time, but eternity doesn't necessarily see it that way. Be that as it may, the repeated emphasis of Hebrews, and this is the one that we need to, to dwell on, is the full and final completion of Jesus' sacrifice. It's done. Verse 2 points us not to the temple of Solomon, which it could, or its successor, the Herod's temple, which was still in use at the time of writing, but see verse 5, to that movable tent temple, or temple tent. The tabernacle, it's sometimes called, which the Israelites built during the days of the Exodus, their wilderness wanderings. 
Once again, the author is keying into that foundational time, that part of the Jewish history and psyche. And we have to try and catch up. We have to try and do our best to identify with them in it. He wants us to think of ourselves in these last days as a journeying people. We haven't yet arrived at our destination. Like the Israelites, our current status is temporary, not permanent. But whereas Israel had to make do with imperfect human priests offering continual animal sacrifices in a physical earthly temple, verses 1, 4, and 6 show us that Jesus' priesthood was, or is, depending on your point of view, exercised in heaven, not on earth. Now, for the modern non-Jewish reader like most of us, all this stuff about temples and sacrifices seems pretty incomprehensible, even perhaps even irrelevant. But as verse 5 reminds us, it's very important. Moses had to construct the tabernacle exactly according to a heavenly pattern. It was to serve as a temporary earthly shadow of an eternal heavenly reality. I reckon if if most of us were physically confronted with that magnificent structure, with all its complex rules and equipment, I think think we'd be impressed with the greatness of God. And if we could constantly see the pillar of fire and cloud standing beside it, I think we'd be awestruck at the nearness of God. Yet again, if we lived all year round with those three strict access levels to God's presence, where we can worship in the outer court, but only priests go into the holy place, and only the one priest, only the high priest, and that only for a couple of minutes a year, could go into the holy of holies, then I think we'd have a much better understanding of the unapproachable holiness of God. The first audience of this letter to the Hebrews was far better connected to these things than we are. But they would be making a bad mistake if they wished themselves back in the desert with Moses and co. Because what we have now, says Hebrews, over and over again, is better in every way than the best the Old Testament has to offer. The author then enlarges on this point, starting at verse 7, where, shockingly, he dares to suggest that the Old Covenant had its faults. Mm, Big stuff. Part two, the permanent presence of God, the promise of God, the permanent promise of God. Having shocked the reader awake with that possibility that God's covenant with Israel was in some way defective, flawed, the writer now explains more precisely what he means. In a sense, verse nine, there was nothing wrong with the covenant at all. Yet it didn't work, couldn't work, because there was still something wrong with the people. They didn't continue in the covenant. So God disregarded them. What do you do with a covenant people who's not a covenant people? You treat them as a non-covenant people. Yet despite that unfaithfulness, as this long quotation from Jeremiah shows, God had not given up on them. His solution, verse 10, is a new covenant, one that is written on their hearts and minds. And for those of us who've been here throughout our our recent series on the first half of Exodus, here is one of a string of Exodus echoes that we find in Hebrews. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. See Exodus 6, 7, and 19, 5, and 6. And this is what I mean when I call this the permanent promise of God. I'm not implying that any of God's promises are less than permanent. The difference is this one 
doesn't depend on our flaky ability to keep our side of the bargain. The reason, verse 13, why the old covenant can't last is not that God's promise failed in some way, but that his covenant people failed to appropriate it. Therefore, says the Hebrews author, God has now written his laws on our hearts, on our minds, not just on tablets of stone or holy scrolls. This is a question of law and spirit. As John 1.17 puts it, the law came through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus. The Old Testament, and, and by the way, uh, the early chapters of John, are this absolutely superb commentary on Hebrews. Um, if you're looking for enlightenment to understand Hebrews, go to the first few chapters of John. The Old Testament's external laws were pointers to the will of God. The internal spirit of God, imperfectly as we understand him, is the will of God. What in the old covenant was a series of rules which we try and keep as best we can, in the new becomes instinctive. It becomes something we love to do because God has changed our nature. The sad implication of verse 11 is that under the old covenant, even though God always intended it to draw people closer to him, in fact there were very few who actually knew him. That's why Jesus, quoting Isaiah, says to the scribes and Pharisees, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In fact, the very people who are well known to be the best exponents, explainers, and keepers of the law, the Old Testament law, were miles away from actually knowing God. In the New Covenant, scribes and Pharisees have no place at all. Kings and cleaners professors and professional footballers would know God. They would all know God. And the reason this is true, verse 12, is that their sins have been taken out of the way. God will finally be known to us through his mercy. In verse 13, now that our sins have been fully and finally dealt with, there is no longer any need for all the atonement rituals of the Old Testament. It has become obsolete. Part three, the past and the presence of God. We now return in more detail to something we mentioned in passing at the beginning of the last chapter, the earthly copies in in Jewish ritual of heavenly realities. The point was well made in in chapter eight, verse five, that these are exact copies. So looking at them is extremely instructive for us, as long as we look at them in the right way. Once again here, we have to be a little careful if we're going to avoid that mistake of trying to measure gas with a ruler. As far as I know, when we die and finally go to be with God, we won't see him in anything we recognize as looking like the earthly temple. What the Hebrews author wants us to understand is that even if that were in some way physically true, I I suppose it might be, let's find out when we get there, The whole construction of the Exodus tent temple shows us one thing very clearly. That is that under the old covenant, verse 8, the way into the presence of God was not open. There was a holy place and then a most holy place, the place where God actually lived. 
And we might want to notice in passing that the very center of Old Testament worship, verse 5, is a mercy seat, not a throne of judgment. Of all the items in the Holy of Holies, this is the only piece of furniture called a seat. And by the way, it's a seat that no human being was ever supposed to sit on. The mercy seat, we have to imagine then, is the place where God sat as ruler of his people. A place of mercy, not of judgment. Yet access even to the outer holy place was restricted, verse 6, to the priests. As to the holiest place, verse 7, only the high priest could go in, that only once a year, bearing sacrificial blood for his own sins and those of the people. The holiness of God then is a very considerable barrier to humanity. In the past, just one man chosen by inheritance out of one tribe, out of one tiny nation on the whole face of the globe could go in for a few scary minutes with God. As verse 8 puts it, through this the Holy Spirit was teaching us that the way to God's presence was not opened. But that was the past. Even at the time when this was written, verse 8, 13, that whole covenant had become obsolete and was ready to vanish away. It didn't actually vanish away until AD 70 when the temple was sacked. Now there's no temple, no active priesthood, no sacrificial system in operation. But that's okay because they're no longer necessary. The whole letter so far has been leading up to this point. Jesus, chapter 1, verse 3, has made purification for sins and sat down at the right hand of God. Chapter 2, verse 9, has tasted death for everyone and is now crowned with honor and glory. Chapter 2, verse 11, is the one who sanctifies. Chapter 2, verse 14, he has destroyed the power of the devil. Chapter 2, 15, he has freed us from lifelong slavery. Chapter 2.17, he has made propitiation, that means he's made us right, for the sins of the people. Chapter 4.14, he has passed through the heavens, i.e. into the highest heaven of all. Chapter 5, verse 9, he's become the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Chapter 6.19 and 20 has gone as a forerunner on our behalf within the veil that is right into the Holy of Holies. Chapter 7.22, he is the guarantor of a better covenant. Chapter 7.25, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him. Chapter 7.25 again, and lives forever to make intercession for them. Those who draw near to God. The presence of God was in the past an annual privilege and a terrifying one at that for the high priest alone. And even with all the Day of Atonement ceremonies faithfully carried out, verses 9 and 10, there was an impermanence, there was a limitation to what was achieved by all that ritual in the life of even the most devoted believer. These rites, important as they were, were just placeholders, just spiritual bookmarks or doorstops, trying to keep the people going until what verse 10 calls the time of reformation. Literally, the time of complete straightening out. These rituals dealt with sin in the outer life, what St. Paul calls the flesh, but they did not affect the inner life, here called the conscience. But that is the past. That was before the way, verse 8, 
into the holy places was opened. So part four, we come to our purification and purpose. Here's a riddle to wake you up. Why should every serious student of the Bible be like the donkey in Shrek? Anyone got it? Because he liked big butts. The, the butt, every serious student of the Bible should like big butts. B-U-T. No second T. Okay. The but at the start of verse 11, he sang that song, didn't he? I like big butts and I cannot like. Okay, every serious Bible student should have that song for different reasons. Okay, don't be naughty, different reasons. Same song should be running through our minds. We like big butts. Here is an enormous one. No, I meant verse 11. It's not, no, no visual aids here. The but at the start of verse 11 is an enormous one. It is a vital hinge point in the whole argument. Everything changed when Jesus appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. As he passed through the heavens in chapter 4, so here in chapter 9, he passed through the greater and more perfect temple tent, verse 11, and entered once only, verse 12, the holy places. That unusual phrase, holy places rather than place, which is actually repeated from chapter 8, verse 2, must surely refer to both the outer holy place and the inner holy of holies, as distinct from the surrounding court, which is not actually called holy at all. And various commentaries sort of argue about this and find it terribly difficult. I'm a simple-minded chap and I find it quite simple. For me, the reason for not distinguishing between the holy place and the holy of holies, just calling the, the holy places, is because Jesus did not distinguish between them. Because he didn't have to. Remember, all the preceding argument we looked at about Jesus being son, not servant. To Jesus, the holy place and the holy of holies are no different from the outer court or even the, the whole camp surrounding it. He is the son of God. And he walks around all of it as if he owns the place. Because he does. All of heaven is his home. And perfectly holy as he is, his humanity is no disqualification. He can go where he likes, just as the Father can. And incredibly, if, as Hebrews teaches, we are, we are indeed redeemed, forgiven sons and daughters of God, then the exact same rules apply to us. We're family. We can go where we like. Being human, of course, Jesus had to pass through death and gain his resurrection body, just as we do, in order to secure physical access to heaven as our great high priest. Being completely sinless, he, unlike any of his earthly counterparts, didn't need to bring a sin offering on his own behalf. But if you remember back at the beginning of our passage in chapter 8, verse 3, we read that, like then, he had to come with some sort of offering. And it seems clear to me from the comparison... um, In verse 13, 13, with the comparison in verse 13, that the offering that Jesus brought on our behalf, verse 14, must have been his own blood. And unlike all the sacrifices of the Old Testament, the blood of Jesus goes far further than merely wiping the slate clean between us and God. As this verse 14 puts it, it actually purifies our conscience from dead works 
to serve the living God. Some commentators have seen that as meaning merely that we no longer feel guilty. We don't have a guilty conscience anymore. But I think it must mean much more than that. One of my old school teachers pointed out to me many years ago, just because your conscience is clear, that doesn't mean you've done right. And just because you feel guilty about something, it doesn't mean you've done wrong. Our consciences are as prone to damage and sickness and distortion as any other part of us, depending on what traumas we undergo and what um, influences we're absorbing from the world around us. As my teacher put it, our conscience has to be educated and corrected. Well, he was a doctor of philosophy. I gave up arguing with him quite early in the piece. I think verse 14 is saying that the blood of Christ not only makes us right with God, but also corrects or purifies our conscience from all those hurts and wrong ideas that we've picked up in our life's journey. I know for a fact that many of us feel guilty about things we shouldn't. But perhaps it's also true that some of us should maybe feel a little guiltier, a little oftener than we do. Haven't we all met children, even adult children, who years and years later still feel guilty about their parents' divorce? And haven't we met others who routinely go around upsetting people and never even notice it? Now, personally, I find this issue of my conscience to be one of those areas of life that is profoundly in the grip of inaugurated theology. Everyone say inaugurated theology. <laughs> right, you're all theologians. That is, the, that is the now and not yet of God's coming kingdom. When I first came to Jesus 40 years ago, my ideas about right and wrong, guilt and innocence, changed significantly. But as I get older, I find that God holds me to higher standards. What once seemed to be okay, and perhaps was, no longer does, no, no longer feels right. And I know those of you who know me will probably be thinking, what a mess I still am. And, and I am. But all I'd say is, you should have seen me ten years ago. Aren't we all engaged in a lifelong learning process of discipleship with Jesus? And finally, to my very last P, and this is another Exodus echo. Our consciences are set free from dead works to serve the living Dead works certainly includes all the things that St. Paul lists in Galatians 5 as works of the flesh as opposed to the fruit of the Spirit. But I suggest that for this letter's first readers, they also include the dead works of Old Testament worship, which are now rendered obsolete and irrelevant by the single, once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In our own culture, we're not particularly tempted to reinstitute the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament. Yet there is a persistent trait in human nature which makes us try to earn favor with God. Well, the message of today's section of Hebrews is we simply don't have to. It's all been done for us. We don't serve God to get free, but we are set free to serve God. When you give your life to Jesus, that's not the end of the race. It's just the starting gun. In Hebrews terms, serving God means holding fast to the confession of our faith in these the last days of our wilderness wanderings. And that means not only explaining the good news to those who ask, but ensuring that our lives are good news 
to everyone around us, and above all, of course, to God himself. If you want to be right with God and have your conscience purified so you can really know right from wrong, if you want to be set free from the power of sin and death so you can enjoy total intimacy with a totally holy God, if you want to serve our merciful Father and live the good news, then why don't you stand with me and pray along with the prayer I'm going to say right now. Let's stand. Gracious God, holy God of the mercy seat set forever in the holiest place of all, we draw near to you because your word says that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who do and that he always lives forever to intercede for us. We come not trusting in anything good we've done or any temptations we've resisted, but in one thing alone, in the blood of Christ, our great high priest, shed for us and offered once for all, both eternally and long ago, so that we may be right with you and have our conscience purified. We give our lives to you and ask you to fill us with your Holy Spirit, that from this day forward, we may know your will and do it. And bring much glory to your name. Amen.